we doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Bill Carrig. Bill is a true entrepreneur. He was a former pro skier for 10 years. He then went on to become a writer and had articles published in Men's Journal, Ski Magazine, and Powder Magazine. He also wrote three books, went on to work as a producer for CBS News slash 48 Hours, was a writer, director, and producer of multiple films, including the documentaries The Edge of Never, Ready to Fly, and The Grand Rescue. He also went on to start several different companies, including Rally Me, which was a crowdfunding platform for athletes. Bill's current venture is Great Coach, which uses technology to improve athlete safety and human enrichment in youth and amateur sport. I hope you enjoy Bill's journey of failures and successes so far. And please make sure to share, like, and subscribe. Thanks, guys. We're rolling. Bill, thank you for taking the time, sir. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me, Bobby. This is fun. Yeah, this should be, uh, should be a good, good time to talk about a little bit of uh, success. You know, we were just uh, before we got on chatting about how uh, 17 different projects. That's a, that's a pretty impressive uh, resume, to say the least. Uh, five movies, three books, two magazines, five different uh, websites or internet companies, and then uh, two TV shows. That is extremely impressive. So my first, my first question to kind of start us off here is, where does that drive come from? What, what drives you? Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, before all of that, uh, I also was a freestyle skier and a mogul skier. And it's just the, I think it's just the innate hustle that was born during that decade that I did that. Right. And just uh, really, I think, I, honestly, I'm driven by sort of three things. And that's uh, insecurity, right? Like I never know if I'm gonna be good enough to do something. Mm -hmm. um, curiosity in terms of like, hey, do you, do you think I could do this? Um, and then, you know, sort of some, I don't know what, chutzpah, I guess, that's like, <laughs> right? It's like yeah. mobile skiing, right? It's yeah. like, you know, I don't know if you ever had this feeling, but I remember mogul skiing and I'd, I'd be in the zone and I'd be competing all day long. And this was that pro format. And it was like four warm up runs and then probably eight competition runs if you made it into the top eight of the top four. Right. And, you know, you're just jacked and you're into it. And I remember going up to get my bag and my extra skis at the top of the course. And I remember looking down the course when the day was all over at Killington. Okay. And I remember looking at the course going, Oh, without any adrenaline or anything. I was like, there's no way I would ski that. That thing looks ridiculous. <laughs> like that, that course looks like a death trap. No sane person would ever do that. Mm -hmm. But when you're all jacked up and when you, you know, trying to challenge yourself, you're throwing yourself down that course. And I think it's kind of, it's been a similar uh, approach to most of the other challenges that I've, I've taken on, you know, yeah. you're just fired up and you wonder if you can do it. And um, sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's super, uh, super inspiring, at least, at least for me to just hear that many projects and that many different things to kind of go down the Avenue and just um, at least like uh, make the attempt you know, I think there are certainly a lot of people out there where fear of failure kind of uh, cripples them to to even make the attempt at like, hey, I have this really good idea, but it's probably not going to work. So why even make the effort of doing it? Right. Well, and, and the truth is any sane person would say that, right? Like right. 
and I'm not saying I'm in, insane, but um, but the odds against success in any startup endeavor, mm-hmm. they're always against you. Like, right. so if you just played the safe bet, um, you probably would never start something new. I mean, right. you, cause it's not safe, but yeah. then again, life's not safe, right? Sure. There's Definitely. life, you know, is set up so that ultimately you fail, right? Yeah. Like you live until you die. And if dying is a failure, then you fail. Right. And I think, you know, both you and I, having participated in individual sports, mm-hmm. particularly mogul skiing, and I was thinking about this when I, when I knew I'd talk to you. So I skied on that pro mogul tour for 10 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was 10 years of, if you think about it, consistent failure. Because yeah. I never, I finished every single competition by losing. <laughs> I yeah. never won the event. <laughs> So my last race, I always lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, I guess unless it was a a five through eight race. Right. Right. So, but in general, I always lost every single time I competed. So if you want to talk about getting over fear fear of failure. Sure. Like some individual sport like that where you lose. Yeah. In my case, yeah, maybe maybe I wasn't that good, but you lose (laughs) all the time. Right. Right. And you no. just get over it and, you know. Yeah, there is. I mean, there is something kind of about having to navigate, navigate over it, right? Through it. And athletics provide such, such a fantastic avenue for that, you know. Um, one of your startups, I definitely have to say thank you um, because Rally Me absolutely uh, helped in my career kind of uh, keeping me afloat while I was working three jobs and trying to train and trying to, uh, come up with uh, funding for a ski season. So for those out there that uh, rally me, um, it's now Sports Engine, right? Yeah, and actually Sports Engine has just decided to um, horizon it. Okay. So it doesn't exist anymore, uh, which okay. is a bummer for athletes like like you were. Um, I'm super stoked that it did help. Yeah, um, that was awesome. It's really fun. Like every so often I'll meet somebody who goes, you know, I raised this much money. It allowed me to do this much. Yep. Um, and, you know, thank you. So, and that's what I built it for, right? right that's, right. Yeah. you know, um, it wasn't a get rich quick scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get rich, but we helped a lot of people. So, yeah. No, it's, yeah. so for those out there, it's kind of similar to like a, a Kickstarter or like a, a GoFundMe, right? Where you would donate and that would kind of go towards your, you know, you could use it to your, towards your ski season or whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and actually funny enough, it started in park city. It started, um, you know, before I did that, I was making a movie about the women ski jumpers. The film ended up being ready to fly, yep. but it was um, sort of their fight for gender equality in the Olympics. And, um, there was a scene that I always remember in the Park Silly Sunday Market where you had Lindsey Van, Sarah Hendrickson, and Abby Hughes. And at the, so one world champion, one about to be world champion, and the other top 10 in the world. And they're standing behind a folding table with a salad bowl on the table. And they're saying, you know, have you heard about women ski jumping? You know, anything you could give would really help. Yep. And people are putting a buck and two bucks in the salad bowl. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was pissed for these 
athletes, right? I'm like, these guys are kicking ass at their sport and, you know, they're not being funded. And this just seems like a demeaning way to go about it. Sure. And the film I was making at the time, we had a very difficult time raising money for it as well. Gotcha. And a former agent of mine had, was one of the early um, employees at Indiegogo crowdfunding. Okay. Okay. He's the one who showed me crowdfunding, but at the time, it wasn't the right vibe for us. So myself and a colleague, um, Utah-based colleague, Whitney Childers, we built our own super simple crowdfunding platform just for the movie. Okay. And it worked. Mm-hmm. And so then fast forward, I'm making the movie, I'm watching the dollars go into the salad bowl, and I'm like, wait, we just did this crowdfunding thing. It totally worked where's the crowdfunding for athletes? Where's the crowdfunding for sports? Right. And it didn't exist. And so um, we created it. I got super lucky and that um, playing men's league hockey in Salt Lake, uh, I was in a locker room and I was trying to convince this guy who was a computer programmer to sort of help me build my vision for what this crowdfunding platform could be. And, um, this guy from across the room, the locker room, says, uh, oh, you mean like Kickstarter? And I said, yeah, like Kickstarter, but for sports. Yep. And he goes, yeah, well, I built that. And I go, what? You didn't build <laughs> Kickstarter. He's like, no, dude, I built Kickstarter. Turned out he had built Kickstarter. So, <laughs> so he was their first tech lead, their first CTO. Okay. Um, So I got him on board. His name's Tim Rupert. And um, we built Rally Me, ran it for four years, sold it to NBC. And then it became part of Sports Engine, which NBC also bought. Okay. Um, And I actually went to work for them for 18 months. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. So so what's the difference with like, what is is Sports Engine essentially the same thing or the same platform? And you can uh, fund athletes or different teams. and things of that nature? Is that what Sports Engine essentially is? Sports Engine is essentially a registration company. Registr- okay. They do the registrations for youth and amateur sports. They're right. very successful at it. Okay. Um, you know, the, the three founders ran it for 10 years before okay. selling it to NBC. They're out of the picture now. Um, they have a lot of other features. It's a sport tech company. Okay. Um, yeah, like I said before, they've retired Rally Me. Yeah. Um, frankly, because I think they got a better deal from another crowdfunding company. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> that does things a bit differently. Okay. Uh, it wouldn't work for you today. Yeah. Right. So that one, the the other company that took Rally Me's place in the sports engine lineup, um, they focus on schools. So they go oh, into okay. high school. They actually run the pep rally. They actually, you know, send the emails. They do all that stuff and they take like 30%. Um, We were different. And so we were focused on getting and keeping kids in sports. Right. You know, by helping them raise a relatively small amount of money. Mm -hmm. And, And the premise that I had rolling into it. So I don't know how much you raise. So we'll see if this holds water. But I thought... Anybody at almost any level with a social network mm-hmm. um, could raise $3,000. Yep. And I raised more than that. So, 
I, I, I remember that you were on there. So I think you raised quite a bit more than that. But yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. And you're kind of sticking with that uh, sports avenue with, with great coach uh, now. It's kind of another new startup. And uh, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so I went to work for Sports Engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was obvious that th- that wasn't going to be a long term solution. Um, so I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um, at the time, I was coaching three hockey teams and a lacrosse team. So I was coaching a lot. Um, and my work at Sports Engine was such that um, I was able to look at every sport tech company in business and see what they were doing and see where the gaps were. And what it seemed to me is that we were helping a lot of people do things like registering kids, like scheduling games, like Mm -hmm. scheduling officials, like paying officials, like all this stuff. But the most important piece, and I know you're a coach, so I, I think you'll agree with this. The most important piece in the whole youth and amateur sports equation Mm-hmm. is the coach athlete relationship Absolutely, right yeah. that's where all the good stuff happens mm-hmm. and while i was thinking about this company it occurred to me that that's also where all the bad stuff happens right yeah, so yeah. the usa gymnastics tragedy was happening yeah that yeah. was you know giving way to lots of other media stories about bad things happening and i thought okay so is there anything we could do to improve the coach athlete relationship? Well, first of all, what do we know about it? Well, not much, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. If you're a youth hockey player, youth soccer player, you're probably going to talk to your neighbors or if you have a kid who plays and they're going to say, yeah, you know, coach Bill, right. we had coach Bill last year. He was great. Cool. You should sign up with his team. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and parents roll in, and they, they go, yeah, Coach Bill. Well, what's his last name? Oh, we don't know. But, you know, the Joneses said that he was awesome. So, yeah, you know, our kids wants to play on his team. And so I tested this theory and I, I did a really informal survey of youth and amateur sports parents. Mm-hmm. It was two questions. And question one was, have you ever Googled your kid's coach? Mm-hmm. Question two was, have you ever Googled where to go to lunch? Right. And Mm -hmm. so I couldn't get, I couldn't buy a yes to question one. (laughs) Nobody had ever Googled their kid's coach. Yeah. Right. And I asked everybody, the first person actually who said they had, and this was well into the hundreds, maybe over a thousand respondents was Eric Hyden, right. An Olympian, five-time gold medalist. He, and, he said, and one yeah. hell of a knee surgeon. He did one hell surgery. of a knee surgeon, yes. <laughs> His wife, by the way, did my bicep. Yeah, uh, he, he did my, uh, my knee and my shoulder. So, uh, yeah, Hyden's <laughs> the man. <laughs> I, I, got, I got one of those for him, too, now. <laughs> but so I thought, well, that's really interesting. So what conclusion can I draw from that? Hmm. Do parents suck and not care about their kids? No. Right. Right. They care deeply about their kids. But from the data, you might think that they care more about the meatball sub for lunch than they do about the guy or gal they're dropping their kid off with for 10, 20 hours a week. 
that's, I mean, that's crazy. That's super right? interesting that you're able to see those pair, you know, and it's one of those things that's so important, right? Like that, I yeah. talk about that coach athlete relationship. Um, and for the long term, right? Say you have a high school football coach and it's those four years of high school are some of the most formative of your life. And when it's a ski coach, I mean, that, that molds your entire uh, outlook on life and those lessons, those life lessons and those coaching lessons that you get have such profound impact on you. I mean, it's crazy to think that they're Googling the meatball sub and coach Bill. Yeah. You know, right. We heard from the neighbors got to go with. Yeah. <laughs> and so exactly. And, and, you know, a, you know, a great coach can impact positively a kid for life mm-hmm. as you just, yeah. And a, but a bad coach can too. Sure. Yeah. Negatively. Absolutely. Right. right? And so, so we, I kind of dug into that in my thinking and uh, talked to a lot of people and, that, well, why is that? You know, we use information technology. It basically, IT innervates every, every um, sphere now, right? Like if you're a farmer, you, you're in IT, right? Yeah. You're watching your data. Mm-hmm. But not in youth sports. That's crazy. And so digging deeper, what, it, what we learned was they just trusted somebody else had done it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the ski club, the hockey club, the yep. soccer club, the school, whomever, Someone's someone else, that. someone else surely has done it. Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody else surely has made sure that that coach has training, that coach has a background check, you know, safe sport training, concussion training, first aid, you know, the, right. the, the basics of mm-hmm. what you should have to work with youth. Mm-hmm. And you know, being in youth and amateur sports coaching, it's not always the case. And actually, and, and so then why isn't it the, the case? Well, because it's hard, right? It's really hard to keep track of. If you have a small club and you got eight coaches, okay, you yep. can do it. Right. Make sure everybody's background check is clean and, you know, make sure that everybody's got training and make sure everybody knows how to talk to kids and, Mm-hmm. But what happens when you have 80 or 800 or 8,000 coaches, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Then it's kind of left to chance again. And so sure. I yeah. thought we could build a platform that would make it really easy for youth and amateur sports organizations to ensure that the coaches are qualified, trained, screened, and solid, right? Yeah. As much as we we could, but we could definitely improve things. Right. And so I, I took basically my same team from Rally Me, mm-hmm. same CTO, um, same co-founder, um, Scott Zeller, lawyer, partner, and um, started this company. Right. The, the day after my, so I, I finished with um, Sports Engine on January 31st, 2018. Mm-hmm. February 2nd, we launched Great Coach. Gotcha. Um, we rolled the product out into the market mm-hmm. six months and one day later, because that's how long my non-compete was. And so <laughs> the day after we launched it and we brought this to all these youth and amateur sports organizations. And we said, you know, we can, we can help you with best practices. Right. We built coaching tools. We built the ability for a one-stop shop app where you could, Coaches could be safe sport trained, background check, 
CDC heads up concussion, first aid, sports specific training. And then we also added in the tools for coaches to do a better job, such as one of the challenges coaching teenagers is communicating with them, in my case, off the ice. Right. Right. Yeah. But you do not want to have non-transparent electronic communication, meaning kids don't text me, don't IM me, don't right. follow me. Right. Yep. Because that's not safe sport compliant. And it's also just a bad idea. Right. And misunderstandings can happen. So we built something called safe messaging that allows a coach to message directly with a minor athlete mm -hmm. by blind copying the parent in the app right. and also saving a non-editable, non-deletable uh, record of the communication so you can see what, what the for the admin. Right, right. Awesome. So, so we built all these things, great you know, real best practices. I was so fired up. Um, we rolled it out into the market and nobody wanted it. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, crazy. you know, everywhere I went, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, Bill, man, you nailed it. It's so cool. Great. We're really cool over here. You should go talk to those guys over there. <laughs> They're a little shaky, but you know, we really got our act together. Right. All right. Yeah. So we kind of failed at that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky enough from, from Rally Me, I have good connections and basically a whole lifetime in sports. Sure. Um, I was able to get a sit down with the then new CEO of the US Olympic Committee, um, US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Sarah Hirschland. And so I showed her what we were doing. She said, man, that's fantastic. And you know, and I said, someday we're going to have a national public facing database of every coach, trainer, volunteer who spends time with kids and the credentials that allow them to do so. She's like, I, I love it. I love it. But obviously we can't implement any of that. You can't expect me to go to my board with that because it's unproven. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, it's unproven. I can't get anybody to bite on this idea. We're six months in. And she said, well, have you thought about doing a pilot program? I said, it's a good idea. We'll do a pilot program with a national governing body. So um, Tiger Shaw and U.S. Ski and Snowboard were generous enough to do a pilot program with us mm -hmm. in early 2019. And um, we used it for their rookie camp um, and for three of the development camps, which I know you've gone to, so you know what the, those scenes look like. And three quarters of the way through that couple month process, somebody said to me, you know, this best practices is all well and good, but what we really need is to comply with the Safe Sport Act. We really need to comply with state and federal laws. We really need to comply with background check requirements from the NGBs, from the USOPC, and I was like, yeah, but we, we built that. We got that. And, yeah. and then it dawned on me like, oh, forget best practices. We're a compliance management solution. That's what we are. And we didn't change a thing. And we just changed how we talked about it. Right. And so halfway through 2019, we got great traction. One of our great early customers was Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation 
which runs the three Olympic venues in Utah. Um, They were one of our early champions. We signed on a bunch of other really great organizations and people started hiring us to take care of getting their compliance in order, right? All the safe sport training background checks and all those things. And so this was 2019 really finally started taking off, um, which was fortunate because we were running out of money. Um, I raised some money from friends and family. Um, and then some local, um, impact investment funds. Um, and so, and then COVID happened and a hundred percent of our revenue is coming from youth and amateur sports. And a hundred percent of the reason we're doing what we're doing is to make youth and amateur sports better. And suddenly youth and amateur sports doesn't exist. It's stopped dead. It's totally, yeah, it's totally stopped. It's crazy. Wow. So sounds like some stuff's uh, happening, right? I, didn't they just announce it? Yeah. Sport, they're playing at least playing some fall sports and stuff like that. And there is a little bit of uh, training and stuff like that. I know some of the teams uh, are at least doing some uh, training back up at the Utah Olympic Park. And Yeah, well, and so what we ended up doing, so after the shock wore off and we were kind of bummed for a little while, and then it was like, wait, after COVID or to emerge from COVID, mm-hmm you're just going to have to comply with new standards. Right. We, we built a compliance management solution. Mm-hmm. We'll just apply it to COVID. Yeah. And so we created a lightweight app within the app called clear to play. And it allows um, parents to, to respond to a symptom tracker, temperature checks and proximity on the app before they leave for the venue, before they leave for the field or the mountain or the rink or, and um, we rolled that out about six weeks ago. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so I decided, you know what? Nobody has any money right now. Um, and you know, in, in the right spirit of things, let's just make it free. And hopefully those groups will later migrate over to our complete compliance solution and, and, and then they'll pay us. And it went absolutely nuts, Bobby. It was like, that's awesome. Yeah, it was so, it was too awesome. We got crushed. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so we got crushed. The system slowed way down. We struggled. Everybody had to go super hard to figure out ways to optimize the, mm-hmm. the solution. Um, and we decided, well, you know, and it got really expensive. So it's like, okay, got to pivot again. We got to charge a minimum uh, $6 per user per year. So that was like, I figured that's the minimum we can charge and break even on it. And, um, and demand has kept going. So, you know, we've got like 10,000 users using it now wow. every day, including um, Park City Ski and Snowboard is using it. Gotcha. Um, I think that's, and different elements in the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation are using it as well. So it's been a kind of a crazy ride and that's where we're at today. That's, I mean, that's uh, fantastic. I mean, one of those uh, things that, you know, as you're, as you're kind of going through that kind of popped into my mind there is uh, perseverance. I mean, yeah. uh, and, and not only this, but all those different uh, startups and stuff that, that you've kind of done 
just just talk about a little bit of of, of that perseverance to to kind of keep going, right? You you spend all that time and and things really aren't working out the way you want, which seems to happen so often in life. I mean, what what's the the attitude you kind of bring to keep your head down and keep working? Like, hey, I know this is a great idea. I know this is uh, sooner or later going to get traction. I just need to see this through. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I hear that question asked a lot. And I'm always, I'm always looking for the answer to that too. <laughs> because the truth in my case is I, I don't always keep the faith, right? Like I have days where I'm like, damn, there are too many obstacles. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't see, I, as long as I, it's like going back to mogul skiing, if I can see the line, I can ski it, right? If I can see the line through the challenge, I, I can do it. Yeah. But I often lose sight of it, and I'm like, now what? And kind of this is not a very elegant or uh, probably not a very wise solution, but I just always say to myself, well, okay, you could quit. You could definitely quit. Mm-hmm. What does the day after you quit look like? Because the, the, the moment where you where, would say, I quit. The stress is off me. I lost. Okay. I bet I lost stresses off me. Mm-hmm. That might actually feel good, but I try and think about what is that next? What do you do next? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, the fear of that day and the just like, you know, I've, I've been through it before where I didn't quit, but it's been taken away and you still have to regroup right. and you don't ever get to quit. Right. Like, you don't get to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a family. I still got to provide for my family. Right. I still got to, you know, I'm still alive. I'm, I'm still driven to do things. Mm-hmm. So I think about that day after, right? And then I go, okay, I can't quit. Um, and, and sometimes I just have to say to myself, I don't necessarily believe that I can see the way, but here are 10 things I can do today. Right. Right. Like I've got a big list of things that I got to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to keep doing things and keep looking and see if I can finally see the line. And then, right. you know, usually it'll appear. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just struggle along in the dark for a long time and you just keep going because that's what you do. Right. That's what you know. Well, I mean, not everyone does that though. You know, I mean, I think that that's part of your, your, obviously your attitude and, and, things of that nature to kind of keep going. Cause not everyone does kind of just keep the head down and, and keep driving. You know, for me, I would say that's definitely true, but I know that like, I've just always uh, had a f- good attitude. Like I'm always a happy person. I'm always looking right. forward to the next thing and the next challenge and, and like kind of thriving under that pressure or that challenge or something that's new. Like there's always that kind of what's next. Right. And, and right. that, Every morning I wake up with a smile on. There's, I can't think of any days where I'm waking up like, oh man, other than maybe when the dog died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, for the most part, I would say 90% of the time, it's a smile on and, and what's, what's kind of today going to bring. And Yeah, I think that that's right. And I, I think in my case, um, you know, uh, I'll quote my wife on this. My wife had a really funny thing to say uh, just before we got married. So just before we get married, she says, oh, this is good. I'm getting married in September. So I need some oh, advice here. So. Okay. Well, this is not exactly <laughs> advice, but this is a great line. I thought, um, so she says, you just got to promise me one thing. It's like, okay, you know, I'm stoked. I'm 
whatever you want, honey. I'm, you know, never cheat on you. Great. Got that one. You know, you know, whatever. And she just goes, one thing, don't ever bore me. And I'm like, so it's our little joke. Like nowadays things have been rocky. Like we've been yeah. together 20 years. Things have right. been up and down for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll always go, Hey, you bored yet? <laughs> nope. <laughs> we, you know, and truly, you know, I haven't been bored a minute in my life, right? Like, I mean, oh, okay, maybe a minute, but right. <laughs> I haven't been bored. I haven't ever gone, ah, I just got to live this boring life and get up and groundhog day and bump, 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 go to the office or punch the clock. I, I haven't ever right. felt that because the flip side is, you know, uh, you know, my living and, you know, there's been no assured path. There's right. been just, the only thing secure is constant insecurity. Like, right. I know that, right? Like, just mm -hmm. what I'm doing now could blow up tomorrow, for sure. Right. So kind of, kind of uh, um, being like paranoid a little bit, right? A little bit of like, you know, a part of that insecurity and is this, is this going to work, you know, or is this not kind of looking over your shoulder, making sure a little bit of paranoia is kind of what it sounds like to, to me a little bit, right? A little paranoia, right. uh, you know, a little insecurity. Like right. I, I still am trying to prove myself to myself, mm -hmm. right? My parents have passed away. I'm not trying to prove myself to them or anybody else, mm -hmm. but I'm still trying, you know, to prove, to myself that I can, that I'm getting everything out of this life that I'm supposed to. Right. right? Really squ squeezing that lemon, getting all the juice out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, none of these are original thoughts I know, but. No, it's, it's good. It's good. I, you know, I, I, uh, I heard a really good one. I was in Nagano uh, working for CBS at that Olympics. And um, there was an athlete, um, whose name I won't mention, but um, wasn't supposed to win the race. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll keep gender out of it. Wasn't supposed to win the race. And I said, you know, um, I got to do the interview, right? And I said, you know, what did you think? You looked up at the clock and the, you know, the curtain of snow funnels down and you look up and you see number one next to your name. And what's the first thing you think? What's the first thing you think? And this athlete says, the first thing, truly the first thing, I got to get my warm-up pants on so nobody can see how big my butt is. <laughs> and I'm like, well, all, all, I think every, everybody's driven by some insecurities, yeah. right? No, absolutely. And, then, uh, yeah. and insecurity is probably a good thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. don't you hate, like, you know, I'm getting old now. I hate when I hear myself sounding old and being like, I know how it is. It's like, right. no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you see the old men at the coffee shop or whatever, you know, yep. like they're yep. so sure they know how it is. And that's such a, you know, once you've gotten secure and I know everything and I can't learn anything else. And yeah. Yeah. Th then no, you're bored. Yeah, that's a great attitude to have, though. You know, speaking of the, the warm-up pants kind of makes me think of uh, when I was reading Andre Agassi's book, and he was talking about whatever, I think it was Wimbledon, or I think it was Wimbledon final, and 
the whole time he was just worried about because he had the the fake uh the hair. fake hair and he was yeah. just the whole match all he was thinking about was his hair falling off and not tennis like whatsoever which is just crazy uh, yeah <laughs> talking yeah, about those insecurities exactly and you yeah. know what I'd, I'd say don't fight your insecurities let them drive you right like you don't know fight them, let them drive you i like that i mean you know by the way i love that book and the guy that wrote that book is one hell of a good writer. Yeah. Um, he also wrote a book called The Tender Bar, which is uh, just a, an amazingly beautifully written. It's um, an autobiography. Okay. It's it's so good. I'm trying to think of his name. It's like J P J R Moringer, maybe. Okay. The Tender anyway, Bar. The Tender Bar. The Tender Bar. Okay. It won some award. It's probably twenty years old now, but it. But he wrote Agassiz's book. Okay, he wrote it. Right? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic writer. Really good at capturing that stuff. Yeah, I always love those uh, tennis tennis books because, especially when I was competing, you know, I feel like it's one of the few things that's a little bit close to kind of that individual sport, right? Even though you are playing against someone or something right. like that, you're still on your own. You have your own team and your own kind of coaches and. So I always love uh, getting the the tennis kind of perspectives and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's interesting, too, because I've read Sampras's book, and he is so different compared to Agassi. And that's oh. I think it's, his is a, a champion's mind, I think. Is it and, as good? Uh, it's just different. It's different okay. in the fact it's, you know, how Agassi's going to Taco Bell and do it in all kinds of, you know, drugs and all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh. Sampras is much more of the uh, – not as exciting it's much more of the you know focused this is so so it kind of if it fits the right personality right that was sampras's personality right and you know you see it in obviously you'd see it in skiing and all kinds of other sports you have those people that are super focused and then you have the other one that likes to party and is talented enough and gets to say you know two completely different paths that that get to the same spot have you ever seen a rush with um Chris Hemsworth and yeah, the uh, race car driving, the, ra- the race car. Yeah. 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 Uh, Nikki yeah. Lauda. Yes. Um, and th- th- it's kind of the same thing, right? You have Chris Hemsworth's character. That's right. His name was just total kind of party guy living on the edge. And then right. you have Nikki Lauda, the focused going in, does his work, doesn't drink, doesn't party kind of. And, and it's just so fascinating to kind of see, you know? Absolutely. By the way, have you seen Netflix's series, F1 Drive to Survive? No, I haven't. It oh, uh, it's it's so good. I mean, it's 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 so good that I called a buddy of mine um, who still makes documentaries and super high level ones, and now he's doing series for Netflix. He used to run Peter Jennings Productions. Um, he made Steep. Uh, okay. Steep was one of the films I was involved in, um, and I said to him, I you have to watch this. You, I mean, it's so incredibly well done. It's there's two seasons. It's all about formula one, but it's all behind the scenes and um, just fantastic. And it's by um, the producers who produce Senna. Okay. Um, Do you see Senna? I think I've seen. Senna is about Ayrton Senna. Um, It won. Did it win? feel like i've seen it it wins sundance it won something big um 
So how did you get down that path? I mean, speaking, you know, one of those uh, startups and everything else, speaking about how, how did you get down the kind of film? The movie? You know, talk about CBS as well. Like kind of how, how did you branch into that, that area? Uh, it all came out of skiing. Um, so after college, I found myself in Vail, Colorado, because um, I wanted to ski moguls. And th that happened to coincide with the start of this pro mogul tour. So like I couldn't, I couldn't go and do this, the process to get on the U S team. I was already 21. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, and already out of college. Um, so I found myself in Vail and, um, just the people that I met through skiing, um, and you know, they've been lifelong friends, but we've also ended up working on things together. Um, you know, the, the, the movie switching over to movies actually happened. Um, I had a friend, so I came out to Utah to do a story on Sundance and I was supposed to go skiing with Robert Redford. And I was so stoked because Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. It's a classic. Uh, just, I love that movie and yeah. the sting and the sting. Yeah. Right. Like, and so I didn't get to go ski with Redford, but I got to go ski with this other guy who lived down there and he was an actor. His name's Brian Wimmer. And right. so I got to go ski with Wimmer. We got to be buddies. He was acting in LA at the time um, and he was in movies. And one day he calls me and he says, and I said, you know, I really want to um, make movies. And I had met this screenwriter in Vail. Okay. And, um, he helped me learn how to write screenplays okay. and, you know, I helped him sort of become a better skier and fit into the nice. life. And yeah. uh, so at the time I had written a few screenplays and gotten nowhere. Um, I'd actually even gotten hired to write two and rewrite another one. And so anyway, Wimmer calls me up one day and he says, you know, there's this guy and he's in park city and, um, He's just about to sell his ski mountain to American Skiing Company, and he wants to go back and make movies, and he has an idea for a movie. Hmm. And so this guy's name was Kenny Griswold, and at the time it was called Wolf Mountain. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I, I called up my editor at Skiing Magazine and said, I want to do a story on this guy. He was like, okay, cool, go do a story. So I went out to write a story about Kenny, um, in the time I spent with him, he ended up pitching me his idea for a movie and I loved the idea. And, um, and the pitch was, especially at the point in my life where I was, was something I was thinking about. Um, the pitch was four guys, all 35 years old, been best friends since high school. Mm -hmm. Some have done well, some haven't done quite so well. They disagree as to why. Was it daddy's money? Was it the connections? What, you know? Yeah. They make a bet. They say 30 days, new city, no cash, no connections. You can't access your past life at all. Four guys leave Los Angeles and they go to Salt Lake City where they've never been before. They can't break the law and they can't access their past lives. That was the pitch he gave me. Right. And I was like, I love that. And you know, yeah. I want to write it. I want to write that, you know? And by the time we got around to that conversation, he was completing the sale. 
the Wolf Mountain. Okay. Um, there was some money available to make a movie. Right. And so I wrote the movie and then um, I co-produced it with him. And I was, the, he directed, I was the second unit director. Um, huh. And, uh, you know, made the movie, shot all in Utah. And uh, really interesting experience, not all positive. Yeah, sure. it has to be super, super interesting. Super interesting. I mean, what was really, really cool for me was, you know, I made up these characters in my head, right? And, you know, Ken Kenny had a vision. So it was partially his vision and partially I was fleshing out all the details of who these people were and what they'd say and all this sure. stuff. Sure, yeah. And, and then, you know, you're, you're just living in your head and, um, and we cast the thing and then all of a sudden it's the first day of shooting. And there are 10, 18 wheelers at the location. Like there are all these trucks, all these people, there's catering, there's all this stuff. And it's like, there's a guy named uh, Craig Sheffer and um, Craig was in River Runs Through It. Okay. Right? He's the brother who wasn't Brad Pitt, right? Okay. So that's, yeah. that's Craig Sheffer. So there's, so he comes out of the wardrobe trailer and he's got this t-shirt on and I, I had written him as kind of a stoner, right? He was kind of the stoner character. And, and I had just written in one little sentence that he's wearing a, a, a t-shirt that says, hemp brings hope. And bear, bear in mind, this is a long time ago. This is, yeah. the, this is 98, okay. right? Yeah. So, um, and he's got that t-shirt on and he's got two other versions of the same t-shirt. And he just walks out and he's like, Bill, wh which one? Which one did you have in mind? And I was like, it was so mind blowing and so cool. Like yeah. these things that I've made up and boom, now it's for real. And he's saying the words that I, that I. Right. Yeah. Up. Visions coming to life. Yeah. Right. So it was yeah. pretty amazing. But so anyway, I, I did that. That was a feature film. Uh, we sold that. Uh, I ended up moving to LA to, hopefully write and direct other films. Right, to kind of pursue um, a little more. Yeah, failed at that, totally failed. Um, gotcha. Took about a year probably to, to realize, no, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want that dream bad enough to live in Los Angeles. Gotcha, right? and is that and, just the, the being out in LA? Cause it's such a different, I mean, especially compared to Park City or other places, the environment is so much different. Um, and, you know, originally being from like New York compared to the times I've been to LA, it's just such a different vibe of person where yeah. like at New York, they'll tell you the GFY like to your right. face. Yeah, where totally. In LA, I feel like they'll piss on you and tell you it's raining and like, oh yeah, let's yeah. do lunch. Like everything's great. I'm like, <laughs> I'd, I'd much rather you just tell me GFY than like right. tell me everything's great and you stab me in the back at the same. Like it's such an interesting contrast between east and west coast there and, and my experiences in la have not been that sweet although the weather is fantastic yeah i mean the weather's cool the smog sucks right. um i'm like you i'm from boston mm -hmm. um definitely uh it just didn't play to my strengths right. um everybody's tall beautiful and i love you babe and right. i'm not tall i'm not beautiful and <laughs> And I don't love you, babe. You know, so like, <laughs> love you, babe. Let's do lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just no. So it took me a while to realize that you couldn't. And and I was just probably not good enough. 
at right. what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, I also, I always had this idea of people in LA, like they're flaky and soft and not hardworking, but they might be flaky and soft, but man, they work really hard. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I probably just wasn't good enough at it. And so mm -hmm. I left, went to San Diego, ran a dot com company. And then when I finally got back to making films, what I really wanted to do was make documentaries. And okay. so. And yeah, um, you came out with uh, The Edge of uh, Edge Never. Of Never? Edge yep. of Never, Ready to Fly. And then uh, what was the, the Grand Rescue, right? Grand Rescue. I was involved in Steep too, but that's Steep a long well. story. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what is that? Well, I mean, I mean, the documentary is so interesting because it's, it's reality, right? <laughs> it's based in, in reality and you're, you're kind of filming these moments. The Edge of Never was about uh, Trevor Peterson, who used to be a really big uh, extreme skier, super kind of famous and would always kind of do crazy stuff. And he died uh, skiing a Kouar in Chamonix, France. And right. so this documentary was about his son, Kai, also a professional skier, you know, super talented and, and kind of going back and conquering those demons and skiing the, it was the same Kuar that his dad died in, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, you know, I was, I really, I really like telling stories and, um, you know, sort of that's the one thing that's been um, the unifying factor in all the different stuff I've done is mm -hmm. uh, generally I can tell a story and I can tell it in a book. I can tell it in a magazine story. I can tell it on an Excel spreadsheet. I can tell it in a PowerPoint, you know, I can, so, yeah. um, but in documentaries, what I really liked is trying to make sense of messy life and put it into a story that is compelling and hopefully transcendent. So, right. um, you know, and, and I, I kind of fell into this theme that, and I didn't realize I was doing it for a while, but, all the projects I worked on tended to be about making family where you find it and how those ad hoc families can help us overcome our greatest challenges. Mm -hmm. Right. And so after a while I started recognizing that in myself that I was looking for that or finding that or whatever. So I, and it's to make a documentary, you're, you're just constantly winging it. Like yeah. you're going out, you're trying to stand back, if you're doing it right, you're not manipulating the situations, okay. um, at least overtly. And you're, you're trying to um, capture a narrative that illuminates something about all of us and not just the particulars of this weird story. Yeah. How difficult is that, like being the director and trying to capture that moment? It's pretty um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, but really you make a documentary in the editing room, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. I mean, Edge of Never, gosh, we had so many cameras rolling and, and you're, just, you're just putting people in place and you're, you're just hoping that, I mean, for the action sequences, you're just hoping yeah. um, that something great happens. And then, you know, for the dialogue and stuff, you're just you're hoping to catch some little nugget right and, uh, you're you hope that you catch the right ones and and then you have to sort of write around it to make it make sense right and so so was that the what was that the first documentary we did was the edge of never um 
pretty much. I mean, I, I had done some television. Yeah. Um, I had uh, helped these old ski buddies of mine. Uh-huh. One whose name's Tom Yellen, who runs the documentary group now, but he used to run Peter Jennings Productions. Okay. Uh, and then another ski buddy who uh, is the executive producer at CBS's 48 Hours. Okay. So I had I had helped them produce episodes. Gotcha. For, so you had a little bit of kind of an idea before kind of going off and, and going in it and getting Yeah. And, and Edge of Never <laughs> was... Uh, started off as a big collaboration with Peter Jennings Mm -hmm. and um, I raised the money. Peter was going to narrate it. Uh, At the time it was involving Kai's story. Mm -hmm. We went to Chamonix, we shot. Um, Peter was supposed to show up in Chamonix. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't uh, because he was diagnosed with um, the fast moving kind of lung cancer. Oh, and and he died and he was dead like three weeks later wow and so that whole thing i kind of lost that whole film right um yeah. and that's when i wrote the book so mm-hmm. i was like i lived this amazing narrative here of this father son and and i have you know hundreds of hours of footage and lots of dialogue, and I'm going to write a book about it because I don't think anybody's ever going to get this story. This story's right. never going to see the light of day. So I wrote a book called The Edge of Never. Um, the book did well, and um, then uh, a different director was brought in to try and resuscitate um, what had then become called Changed to Steep. Okay. And so I wasn't really welcome to be part of that. Um, gotcha. Complicated, complicated. <laughs> um, but I was able to go back and buy the footage that I had directed of Kai and all the stuff with Plake, okay. Ben Plake and Mike Hatrip and, yeah. you know, um, and then I was able to go raise the money again and uh, for the second time for the same story. And then finally make the movie. That's awesome. That's, yes. That's, that's a, so it's a weird, weird and twisted tale. <laughs> I mean, talk about perseverance though. I mean, that's, uh, that's awesome to be able to kind of, you know, you want to see that uh, full, full view of, of your vision kind of come to life. You know, not only do you get it with the book, go back through, get the footage, and then you kind of get to see your, your full vision. Yeah. I mean, I guess it looks like, perseverance and i guess it was but it's just kind of like oh this is what i'm doing and and people believe in me and people have you know people have sacrificed for this vision that i've had and they've given me money and Mm -hmm. you know what would it look like the day after i quit right Mm -hmm. so right yeah i'm not gonna quit so so, so yeah. for people kind of going into becoming entrepreneurs or they have these ideas and, and what, what kind of words of wisdom, uh, you know, or, <laughs> or piece of advice, you know, because it is uh, navigating through that fear of failure and, and those kind of uh, big, scary things. Uh, what, what would you give them? Uh, let's see. So I think, first of all, when you say advice, um, I've always made it a point not to offer advice except in one circumstance. I think I learned something really important. Um, There was a period where um, my mom had died. 
my dad was um, in the early stages of Alzheimer's. So we moved him from Boston out to here mm-hmm. and we took care of him uh, for seven years. And at the same time, I had little kids and um, it was a really, really trying time. And, you know, my dad would make it so much harder. Not his fault, but he was sure. yeah. you know, deteriorating and he would do things like he'd go rent another apartment and I'd put him in a assisted living and he'd bust out and he'd go start living somewhere else. And, and so in, and then, you know, so whenever I try and help him, he'd get mad. You know, my little kids wanted my time and it was the one time in my life where it was like, I can clearly see the right thing to do here. And I can clearly see that nobody's going to pat you on the back for this one. Mm -hmm. Right. There's going to be no big reward. Dad's going to die. Right. That's where this story ends. And, you know, your wife and your kids are going to resent you because you can't spend as much time with them as you'd like. And so, you know, when I, and I really tried to do everything as best I could. Um, But the one piece of advice that I, I figured out from that was like, you just got to laugh more. Right. Like when things would make me so angry, like I get so pissed, like, I am trying so hard here and you just put another damn obstacle and you know, like Mm -hmm. just laugh more. (laughs) I mean, that sounds stupid, but like that's my one piece of advice that I advice. That's good. Just laugh more. And then I think my other, like a more tactical thing. um, If you're going to be an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. um, choose the right partner, right? right Not, not business partner. Yeah. The right life partner, because in in my experience, you you can't fight all day and completely carry the belief for everybody who believes in you. um, If you go home and the person there doesn't believe in you and doesn't, you know, support what you're doing. So like, you, you know, I've been really lucky and blessed that, have a wonderful partner there who's you know thick and thin as long as um as long as i haven't bored her right so so i guess those would be my two things laugh more laugh like when it gets really hard try and find the humor and you know try and pick a partner who can be there for you because yeah and i do know people who are so strong that they can they can fight every demon all day long and then fight mm-hmm. with their husband or wife when they go home. Um, I can't like, yeah. there's, right. there's gotta be a place where you can go and be supported yeah. and you know, and, Definitely. and yeah, that's, that's what, that's all I got. Good. Not, Good. not so <laughs> profound. But, uh, no, definitely. I, uh, I, I like it a lot. I think it's, I think it's definitely, uh, definitely good. Now earlier, uh, a lot earlier talking about, all the different things you have to get done in a day with great coach. You know, you got, you got your list of all those different things you're trying to tackle each and every day. What kind of helps you stay focused or or how do you kind of prioritize being able to tackle those objectives? Are you, do you take a lot of notes? Are you a note taker or or how do you kind of organize and how are you able to kind of attack those things? I know some people just uh, have reminders on their phone I know like Hannah Kearney, she was a big, she's got post-it notes all over the place and bullet points and I need to take care of this, 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 and there's so many different strategies. So I'm just kind of curious what, what helps yeah, you I'm, attack I'm it. Pretty, 
I'm pretty old school. Let me see if I can. I'm old school. That's what I do. I list every day. Every day. Okay. Every day. And the only real, I mean, I, it doesn't take discipline for me to write down all the things I got to do and sure. think about. Yeah. The, the only discipline that I have is that I always at least try to do the hardest thing first. Okay. Right? Like I just hate having that call you don't want to make hang over you all day because then every other thing that you got to do, you do poorly. Right. So it's just like, you know, and, and sometimes it's like one where I go, I got to do this one. Yeah. I, I know I don't even have the chops to do it well, but I got to do it and move it on. Right. And, you know, maybe I do a lousy job at it, but then I'm, I'm past it. And then right. I'm, then, then I've got momentum. Not, it's not like in the back of your head all day, like, Oh yeah. boy, I'm going to push this to the end of the day. And then it's just, you're thinking about it all day rather than taking care of it first. Yeah. And I think it's a good discipline too, sure. to kind of like take a look at your day and go, okay, that's going to suck. Yeah. You know, and just, just realize, Oh, I got that one. I got that. Yeah. I can see how to do that. This one, I got no clue. Good. I'll do that. Right. You know? Yeah. That's no, that's good. I'm, I'm going to try and uh, heed that advice there. I like that. I like it. And uh, cause I definitely can find myself getting caught up like, Oh, I got to, I'll do that at the end of the day because it's the, and then it is on my mind, like most of the day, like, damn it, I still have to do this at the end of the day where I think, I think I'm going to try and switch that around and, and it makes it just makes it a bad day too right yeah sure no, it's harder sure. to have a good day yeah. when you get the bad thing coming yeah no definitely. It, it can also ruin your day but at least you get it out of the way <laughs> well uh thank you very much for for taking the time yes. i really appreciate it we got to uh, we well, got to do this again wrap and, up, i do yeah. have to compliment you and say that i'm so jealous that i didn't figure out the shamrocks on the knees the shamrocks mogul on the knees. skiing yeah like Damn, I wish I had done that. that well, I mean, so it's, cool. it's a pretty straightforward, easy of how it, it, how it all kind of started. It's very just organic. It was my, uh, my grandfather uh, used to play the bagpipes in the New York St. Paddy's Day Parade. So we were, you know, O'Carroll, dropped the O, obviously, Carroll. And so always kind of grew up with it. And it was actually a junior nationals was here in Park City. And uh, singles day was uh, on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, wow. So my yeah. parents were like, you know, you got to do something for St. Patty's Day. And it actually just started out. I had these tiny little stickers that I just put on the knee patches. And uh, kind of the next, it, it just started to like grow from there. I was like, why don't I just have them on all the time? Because, uh, you know, n nowadays, uh, not so much with the creativity, but, but back uh, in, in the day, you know, you had Travis Cabral with the smiley faces and all yeah, the different yeah. things on your knee pants. Uh, Sean Luc Broussard with that uh, really a fluorescent kind of yellow and everything else. So I was like, all right, I, I, I got it. You know, I'll run, I'll run with the shamrocks, you know, I'll go with it. And it kind of became my, my trademark everywhere around the world. People might not have known my name, but they definitely knew the shamrocks. I was, I was known uh, for that. So it's kind of cool how that worked yeah. out. <laughs> nice job on that. I wish, I wish that I had seen that, however many years ago that was because <laughs> that, that, that's a great visual and i'm just you know some scrappy irish guy from boston so it would have been perfect perfect oh, yeah well next time hopefully after this is passed we'll have a little more of a studio we can have a couple beers and chat a little yeah. bit more about the next venture well, we gotta uh, finish this one first <laughs> yeah exactly well uh thanks a lot for taking the time and uh awesome. we'll talk to you awesome talk job. to you soon all right bye everybody
Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.